0: Thank you church family for being here with us in Carrollton and all of you joining us online. We are grateful that you are here for these moments together to worship Jesus together. Hope you've had a wonderful week and we're excited to open up God's Word today and to jump into our third week now in the series called Experience and Share. My name is Lippon Abraham, and I get the joy of being lead pastor here and serving you and opening up God's word with you. Last week, we opened up this mission statement to our church. It's really a simplified version of many words that have existed that you're familiar with, that our mission is to experience and share the love of Jesus. What is it that we do as a church? What is it that we do as a Christ follower? Well, Jesus said, you are to be marked by how you love one another as I have loved you. The love of Jesus defines, it demonstrates, it gives clarity in the most specific and personal way to the love of our Father, to the love of God. And we are invited every day, individually and collectively, to experience and share the love of Jesus. Two weeks ago, I was at the end of the service meeting one of our sisters who said, I haven't been to church in four or five years. It's been a long time. She grew up in Ethiopia, and because of her faith, her family had totally ostracized her Over the last few years, she had faced one death in her family after another, so many hardships, and she had come to the conclusion that perhaps I made God up, that he doesn't actually exist. And so before walking away from her faith, she said, let me just attend church one more time and see if this God thing is real. She was in our services, and during our service, she said, the love of God overwhelmed her. And God yet again proved that he is real. He is true. It was the power and grace of God. I love that. When we gather, as we live, we experience the love of Jesus in a real transformative way. Last Sunday at the end of the first service, we taught on the love of Jesus. Because the love of Jesus, it'll lead you to do radical things that make no sense. This gentleman said, I've been dealing with a crazy issue at work. I've been accused falsely, I've been maligned, my reputation has been ruined, and it's given me so much losses. I've been facing one loss after another, and my legal counsel has told me to lawyer up and then receive what's rightfully mine legally and to sue this person. But he said, today, uh, the Holy Spirit has given me complete peace about forgiving, that this could actually be more impactful than pursuing justice, because it is the law of love. It may be different every situation, every story may be different, but there is a sense where God's love says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the book of James for us. We as a people, we experience this a real love. We share this incredible love, and this is what sets us apart. And when we love the way Jesus loves, disciples are made and the world is transformed. I think about the early church who, has, who saw Jesus face to face. They saw him die, they saw him rise from the grave. And then on the day of Pentecost, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit by whose power they could now love as Jesus loved. And overnight on the day of Pentecost, the church went from 120 people to a church of 3,120. That's a pretty amazing church growth moment right there. In the best way possible, the church is out of their hands. And Jesus supernaturally is moving, changing the world. And Acts 2 begins to describe, I'm not going to turn that it's a familiar passage if you've been in church, but if not, take a look at Acts 2. At the end of Acts 2, we read about the rhythms of this early church, how they functioned together as a church of Jesus. They met every day, it says. They daily met at the temple. They listened to the apostles teaching about Jesus and how the scriptures bore witness of who Jesus was. They prayed together, they sang together, they worshipped together. And in these gatherings, in these settings, miracles and signs and wonders were happening. So that means that the, he, that the sick in their community, that the broken, that those who needed healing saw these Christ followers and said, we got to go to these Christians because there's something different about them. And somehow the broken, the marginalized, the sick found their way to Christians and they were healed by the supernatural power of God and as people saw this outsiders looking in they were amazed and Luke says in Acts they were in awe of all that was happening but their gathering just didn't end in the temple they would now go week to week I'm sorry day to day rather home to home house to house and Acts 2 says they would break bread They would have what we call the fellowship meal, which would have been several hours, not a fast food drive-through kind of meal, but a meal designed for conversation, for relationship. And here they would continue the story of Jesus and share how their own life had been transformed by this Jesus. And in sharing the story of Jesus, they would share one another's story and how they came to know him and how he has transformed their life. They were deeply committed home to home breaking bread and doing life together. This was amazing. And as they saw and realized needs among them, this community came around and said, what do we gotta do to meet the need you have? Do we need to sell property? Do we need to gather our resources? How can we now meet the needs of God's people? Because love wasn't just in words, it was the very action of their life. They were sacrificial, they were generous, they were self-giving. And it drove the Romans crazy. The Romans says, there's no stranger among them. They don't just love their own, they love even us. What are we to do with that? And this is a love that turned the world upside down. This kind of love. And the Bible says in Acts 2 that every day, God was adding to their number those who were being saved. Oh, to be that kind of a church where every day, not just weekly, people were being saved because of how the church was experiencing and sharing the love of Jesus. Or oh, to be a church where in our community, those who were hurting, those who were sick, we say there's something at Bent Tree. There's something about the people at Bent Tree that carry a certain presence about them by this holy God. I feel safe to come and share my heart, share my wound, share my hurt, because there's something healing about this Jesus that they serve to be a church where there are no strangers among us, but all are welcomed, all are loved, all are embraced as they are, then we all grow into the likeness of Jesus. We are challenged to grow as Christ is, to be that kind of a church. From the first century on, for the last 21 centuries, churches all across the globe have tried to formulate rhythms and strategies that mirror the church in Acts that rhythm of Acts 2. And in fact, you heard a few weeks ago from Dr. Gene Getz that when Bentry was started as other churches in the area, this is what drove them to begin and launch this kind of church, a church that would do these rhythms within their life, within their body life. And today I want to just offer you certain phrases that really describe this rhythm for us here at Bentry. Rhythms and qualities and strategies that I pray would be deeply a part of your life and our life as a church community if our mission is to experience and love of Jesus how is it that we do that together so here is what I'm praying and believing is to be the strategy of our church that mirrors so closely the life of the early church the first one is this that we worship together That we as a church we worship together meaning we are expressing gratitude and hope as a unified people through worship to God Just as these early disciples gathered in the temple to worship and they gathered in homes to worship, there was a sense of thanksgiving and hope that was expressed, but it was done in community. We worship together. And today I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. But second of all, we don't just worship together. We're not just connected to God vertically, but we invite you to be known, to be known that we are a people who are known and who are knowing one another. That we grow daily in relationship with Jesus. We know him more and we open our hearts to him more. And we grow in relationship with one another at Tree. That we don't just see us as a random grouping of people, but we see each other as family, as the people of God. And we allow deep transformation to happen through, rela- through relationships. Whether that be one-on-one discipleship or Bible studies or life groups, as we heard about today, that we allow God to change us through relationships. We want everybody at Bentry to be known by somebody. This is what makes vulnerable and personal relationships so transformative in the context of the local church. You saw a video earlier about our high school retreat. We have strategically offered this retreat for high school students at the beginning of the school year because we believe that students are deeply transformed when they know one another. At a retreat setting like this, when they can be in a relationship with a ministry leader so that when challenges come across, when questions come across, when doubts come across, they can go to somebody that they're known by. Go to a ministry leader. Go to their small group. So we invite you, if you have a high schooler, give them the gift of being known. Sign up and join us on this high school retreat. We want to be a church that knows one another. This is what allowed needs to surface and ministry to happen. Third of all, so first of all, we worship together. We invite you to be known. And lastly, we make a difference. We make a difference. This is our outreach. This is our mission. We live in a world where everyone wants to make a lasting impression. But Jesus invites us to make a lasting difference. There's a world of difference between the two. Not just a lasting impression, but a lasting difference make a difference that lasts not just in our lifetime, but in lifetimes to come. As we have spiritual conversations and as we serve one another in the body, as we meet tangible needs in our community, as we partner with local ministries, as we go on mission, as there is a group right now in India, we are making a difference. As we offer our financial resources for God's glory, his kingdom, for his message to reach the nations and those right here in our neighborhoods, we are making a difference. A difference. So when you think about what does it mean to be adventuring, to be a member, I hope that these three things come together. We invite you to worship together, to be known, and to make a difference. In all three of these things, we are experiencing and sharing the love of Jesus. When we do these three things as a normal rhythm of our life, we are changed, we experience him, and we share him. Today I wanna unpack a little bit of the worship together piece of our strategy. We worship together. I think in our culture today, a lot of us, we understand worship. and Christians, we understand worship. But we may have a hard time understanding what it means to worship together. Our faith today, more than any other time, has been privatized. And it's my personal relationship with Jesus, and that's all, essentially, that matters. I've got Jesus. I don't really have to have the church. I can listen to a great podcast Pop in a great worship music. I'm good to go. But a Christian, by definition, is inseparably connected to Jesus and to his church. They are part of the body of Christ. Yes, our faith is personal, but it's not private. Our faith is personal, but it's not individualistic. It is communal by nature. It is a family of God belonging together and worshiping together. We worship together. I want to give you a look at second, First Peter. When Peter describes this core identity, really four identity markers of the worshiping community of God, notice how Peter describes the church of Jesus, this worshiping community. First Peter 2 verse 9 to 10 says it like this, but you, and that you is plural, that's not singular, It's plural, and oftentimes when scripture writers speak in that pronoun, it's a plural pronoun. They imagine people would gather together and unpack, discern, and process the word of God together. So you, or y'all in Texas, you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. You have received mercy. You have you had not received mercy but wow, now you have received mercy. Peter says, "You all, here's what I, I want you to Think of yourself as this new covenant community of worshipers who exist to proclaim the praises of he who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We sang about graves into gardens. That's not just a theological statement, that's your story. From darkness to light, from death to life. But Peter says our core identity as a praising people, as a worshiping community, is that you are a chosen race, A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Notice these four identity markers, how it's impossible to do any of those four by yourself. You can't be a race of people comprised of one person, can you? No, it's a collective group of people. You actually can't be a royal priesthood by yourself. Now, individually, we are the priests of God. But a priesthood is the coming together of individual priests. You are a holy nation. You can't be a country all by yourself, can you? I think there's some who have tried that. But if someone says, I'm a country on my own and it's only for me, run from that person. That may be a little crazy. No, a nation, a holy nation is a gathering of a group of people. You are A people for his possession. I think if we Westerners wrote it, we would say you are a person for his possession, which is true, but that's not what Peter says. He says you are a people for his possession. One race, one priesthood, one people, one holy nation. You can't do any of these things by yourself. Because this is how God designed the church, to proclaim the praises of the one. It's together as a community of people. So I was thinking about Peter's words here. I wanted to bring to you four metaphors from this text and from the scriptures that invite us to worshiping together, to express hope and gratitude to God together in worship. Four metaphors. uh, metaphors. The first one It's the assembly of God, the assembly of God. Peter begins by saying you are a chosen race and that very phrase alludes back to the Old Testament where Israel was the chosen race of God. It was through Israel God would now bring in other nations but God first chose them so that he could bless the world through them. But part and parcel of what it meant to be the chosen people of God, the chosen race of God was the assembling together as one people. All throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his chosen race as his own assembly. If you remember when God led Moses to free the Israelites from Egypt, the very request that Moses makes of Pharaoh is, let us go and assemble. Let us go and worship God. Yes, they could have worshipped by themselves in Egypt, but God desired for his people to come together collectively as an assembly and worship him. So in Deuteronomy 9, when they finally get to Mount Sinai, after all this journey through the wilderness, Moses says, this is the day of our assembly. Because to be a holy race, to be a chosen race, is to gather together as the assembly of this covenant God called Yahweh. Psalm 149, 1 says, hallelujah, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the faithful. His praise where? In the assembly, in the gathering of the faithful. So Israel had regiment times and patterns when they would gather as an assembly, and then God would impromptu call unplanned assemblies, saying, come before me as a people, and the saints, the faithful, those who trusted in God, would come before him as the assembly. Now it's fascinating that the Greek translation of the Old Testament word assembly is the word ekklesia in the New Testament. The Hebrew word assembly is in the Greek, in the New Testament, the ekklesia. And that's the word that Jesus uses when he comes on the scene in the New Testament and talks about his church. He talks about a different kind of assembly, a global, broader assembly of God's people. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, And I also say to you, this is to Peter, the one that's writing to us in 2 Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That word is ecclesia, the assembly, the called out people of God. Just as Israel was called out of Egypt, God says, I'm calling a people out of the world to be my own race, a new race of people, a new assembly, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is speaking about how he's now calling Jews and Gentiles Israelites and non-Israelites into this new race, this new assembly for himself, a new ecclesia, a gathered body of people. This is his church, his body. And just as the Israelites assembled before God in the Old Testament, these Christian believers and disciples regularly assembled before God in the New Testament. It's true, they did. They assembled, some daily, if not weekly. They would gather together and worship God. This was a regular pattern, as we see all across Acts and the epistles, of how the church of Jesus assembled before him. And we're not commanded to gather as a church on a Sunday. We can gather any day of the week. But there is this pattern in the New Testament where the church of Jesus gathered, they called it the first day of the week, which would be our Sunday. So sometimes we see Sunday as the end of the week, Actually, in the New Testament, it was the beginning of the week. That what happens in our gathering is to mobilize you for the rest of the week. What you do at work and what you do in your family, what you do in your neighborhood is catapulted. It is inspired by being together on the first day of the week that sets the tempo for the rest of the week. Eight times in the New Testament, we're told that the believers gathered on the first day to worship God. Acts twenty seven is one of those verses that says, "On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread." Peter spoke; Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. I know sometimes my sermons can be long, but I'm doing better than Paul. <laughs> he said, "I'm leaving the next day. I'm keeping you till midnight." <laughs> he talked all night long. First day of the week, they gather together to break bread, to hear God's word being taught, to worship as a church, as the assembly of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, as he's addressing a sensitive church discipline issue, he says, I can't be there with you in person, but when you are assembled, he's speaking of the first day of the week gathering, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. Assembling was a regular part of their life. 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of what happens when they worship together. Verse 26, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn. And this coming together is the first day of the week gathering of the believers. When you do, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. Oh, they gather. And here's the deal. The New Testament church has far more reasons not to gather than we do. They experienced far less freedoms, religious freedoms, liberties than we do. They were persecuted, some were killed for their faith, but they gathered because they saw the assembling of God's people as vital to being the church of Jesus. So they came together and sung a hymn, they taught, they opened their hearts to the word of God, the revelation and insight. They practiced spiritual disciplines to build up the body of Jesus Christ. They weekly gathered, if not more. The first eight years of my life was living in South India. And our church building there was probably a third of the size of the stage. And several hundred people would gather together every week. I remember the names of families and the faces of families who would walk four hours to come to one service. They would leave five in the morning and start walking. For some, they would take four or five buses to get to one service. And when they would come, they were full of joy. They didn't seem tired. They were rejuvenated by worship and spirit and truth. They would be totally engaged in God's word. They would pray for one another. They would exercise God's spiritual gifts among them. And they left transformed. Many of them are the only believers in their family. Some of them knew they would be persecuted when they came home because they went to church, but they still came because they wanted to be with the assembly of God, with the church of Jesus, this new race of people, because everything else in the world was hostile to them. So this was precious, deeply valuable. Even today in parts of Africa, people walk four plus hours to get to a tree where the church is gathering. My parents lived in Saudi Arabia for a long time. And my dad would tell me how when they gathered on the first day of the week, they would take actual stereos and radios and crank up the volume outside on the perimeter of where they would meet so the people wouldn't hear their singing, because if they did, they would come and stop their worship. But they would go to extreme measures just to be able to gather for a few hours and worship Jesus. I think they understood what the writer of Scripture said in Hebrews chapter to twelve, and he said, don't neglect the gathering of the believers, but consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not neglecting the gathering of the churches somewhere in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, even as you see the day of the Lord approaching. The writer of Hebrews is saying, when we gather, we are encouraging one another. We're saying, hang in there, it's worth following Jesus. Don't quit on your faith. Come together, let's pray for you, let's encourage one another. Because this gathering of the believers does that. It's the assembly of God. Just as they gathered in ancient Israel, we in the New Testament, New Covenant, we gather, we assemble together to sing, to worship, to minister to the body. The second imagery that Peter uses is that we are the priesthood of God. So we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, and a royal priesthood of God. Peter actually says early on in 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 5 about this priesthood he says you yourselves as living stones a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood. Notice again the language of all of us coming together as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament the priest served the purpose of being a means of intercession and worship to God. And they did that by offering two kinds of sacrifices. They would offer the sin offerings and they would offer the thank offerings. Sin offerings was an appeal for the forgiveness of sins, but the thank offerings was an expression of gratitude. But in the new covenant, Jesus is our sin offering. This one perfect sacrifice has come. The Lamb of God has come. And he is our perfect sacrifice. So we don't have to keep on offering sin sacrifices. Jesus is that for us, amen? That's good news. But there is still one more offering that the priesthood of God is called to bring. is the offering of thanks. The thank offering. So notice the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly professes his name. God did not do away with the priesthood in the new covenant. No, there is still a priesthood, which is you. And I, it's a gathered church of Jesus. We're individually priests, but collectively we are the priesthood of God. And what is the role of the priesthood? It is to continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise and worship and thanksgiving, openly professing, openly celebrating, openly confessing His name. This is the role of the priesthood. This is a job description of his saints. We, the priesthood of God, together, not individual priests by themselves, but together, the priesthood of God, offering praise in unison. Now, here's the deal. If those in the old covenant had ample reasons to slay animals as a thank offering to God, how much more do we in the new covenant are filled with reasons to offer thanks to God? Because we are not just waiting for the Messiah to come, the Messiah has come. We are not just hoping for a Savior, the Savior has come. We are not anticipating rescue, the rescue has come. So can we church today put our hands together and say thank you Jesus. We offer a sacrifice of praise. That's our only offering as a priesthood. The fruit of our lips that confesses his name. There's a third imagery that comes to mind when Paul speaks particularly of a holy nation. And for me, it's the idea of the embassy of God. So we are the assembly of God, the priesthood of God, but also the assembly of God. Paul says, you are a holy nation. As I was thinking about that word nation, I began to think about an embassy, now Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. You and I we are ambassadors. There's a kingdom agenda he invites you to. You are an ambassador for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. If individually we are priests but collectively we are a priesthood. If individually we are ambassadors then collectively what is it? We are an embassy a holy nation, an embassy of God. thinking about an embassy. An embassy is physically located in a foreign country. They are the physical representation of a distant country. They are the outposts of a different kingdom. They are in that country, but they're not of that country. The rules, cultures, and traditions of that country do not apply to them because within the parameters of an embassy, it's a different set of rules. It's a different identity. It's a different tradition and culture because they represent a foreign nation. Isn't that the case when we, who are ambassadors of Jesus independently, come together as a gathered church of Jesus, this group of ambassadors becomes the embassy. That the visible gathered church becomes the outpost of God's kingdom where heaven reigns, his way rules, his word guides us, and we live. To a different be, we live to a different rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. And when we disperse and we scatter around the world, we pray the prayer, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we gather and we worship together, it is a visible outpost, a visible embassy of God's way, his rule, his salvation. I don't have time to go into it, but Matthew 18 speaks of the authority when two or three come together. Not just individually, but when two or three come together in the name of Jesus. Matthew says, whatever is bound on earth has already been bound in heaven. Whatever is loosened on earth has already been loosened in heaven. But this happens when two or three gather in my name. It happens when collectively ambassadors come together and represent this visible embassy of God and we worship together. There's a last one that Peter says that we are the people of God. The assembly of God, we're the priesthood of God, we're the embassy of God, and Peter says, we together form the people of God. And this is a direct reference to Isaiah 43 verse 21, where Isaiah says, the people I formed, where God says to Isaiah, the people I formed for myself will declare my praise. A core identity of God forming you as his people is for the proclamation of his praise. So when we individually, we praise God in our cars, and you should, you praise God at home, and you should, but when we come together collectively as a gathered church of Jesus in many places together, these many streams of praise form a river of praise. All of the individual stories and streams of praise come collectively to become this mighty public river of praise. And a Puritan pastor by the name of David Clarkson says, this collective coming together of the streams of praise into the river of praise is a river of God that makes glad the city of God. When we gather together on a worship setting like this, it's streams flowing together to worship together. A private stream becomes a public river. And this is exactly what Peter says, back to First Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his possession. Why? So that you may together as one body, as one priesthood, as one assembly, as one embassy, as one people proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a deep word, to proclaim the praises of God. And as I was thinking about it this week, there was at least three directions, and I'm not gonna go into the details, but there's at least three directions that the proclamation of our praises go to. First of all, we proclaim to one another. We proclaim the praises of God to one another. Often when we think of worship, it's just us and God, and that's, for the most part, true. But there is a sense where our proclamation of praise encourages, reaches one another. And this is what Paul said in Ephesians 5 when he describes our spiritual worship. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking... one another he's speaking about worship to God but notice the direction also of our worship speaking to one another how in psalms hymns spiritual songs singing and making music with your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Paul is saying there's something horizontal that happens when we come to worship God your worship encourages somebody else. Your worship together speaks to somebody else. Meaning it calls out deep worship in the other person. This happens when we are known and our story is unknown. And I see somebody that's been given a horrible diagnosis and yet they are flooding with tears in their eyes worshiping Jesus. That calls out deep worship in me to say, Jesus is still worthy of your life. When I see our special needs friends worshiping Jesus so joyfully, it calls out worship in me. When I see those who are hurting and those who are struggling still proclaim the name of Jesus, we are speaking to one another the praises of God. It does something when we worship together. We proclaim to one another. Second direction of our proclamation, we proclaim to powers and principalities Not only do we proclaim the praises of God to one another, but there is actually a dimension where it's not just God who hears our praises. The enemy hears your praise. Powers and principalities in high places hear your praise. This is what Paul said in Ephesians three when he talks about how God has gathered Jews and Gentiles to worship Him in his church. Paul says, "This is so that god 's multifaceted wisdom may now be known through the church, through the gathered church of different people of Jews and Gentiles of young and old, white, black, and brown, of introverts and extroverts of employed and unemployed, when we come together to worship Him." God's manifold wisdom is now made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. He's speaking about principalities and dark powers and evil powers. Your worship not only blesses God, but it shames the enemy. When we gather as the people of God, who should by natural means be segregated and separated and alienated, Paul says, when you gather like this together, it sends a powerful notice to principalities and powers that astounds them regarding the wisdom of God. They think, how could it be that this Jesus we try to crucify brings people together across ethnic and socioeconomic lines? How could it be that all of these people who have no reason to be together can worship in unison Your worship proclaims the wisdom of God to powers and principalities. God doesn't just hear your praise, the enemy hears your praise. And it makes another public public spectacle of the enemy, because we are resounding the truth of God's wisdom that is through the cross, is through the shed blood that we gather. Our praise does something to one another. Our praise together, our worship together, our proclamation together, reaches the ears of the enemy. And lastly, you know this, we proclaim our praise to Jesus. It goes into the ears of our Father, to Jesus the Spirit. So when we sing, I couldn't help but imagine what Jesus feels, what he sings when the gathered church of Jesus comes together with one voice. It's a rehearsal for Revelation five and seven. It's a rehearsal for that day when we will see him face to face and we are singing to him directly. It's a needed reminder that that's where we are going. So when we sing together, it is a rehearsal for what we will be doing for all ages to come. It's the sound of the bride singing to the bridegroom. So in your worship, As we gather together, worship together as the assembly, the people, the priesthood, this nation of God. We call out to each other the worthiness of Jesus. We put the enemy to shame, proclaiming Christ crucified. And it swells up the heart of Christ himself, our bridegroom. I want to offer two challenges for those in the room. When you come, don't just attend, but worship. Know that this is what your worship does. It calls out worship in other people. Your worship is a witness. So come ready to offer these spiritual sacrifices. In fact, if you can't come early and begin to pray for those that will come into this room and worship him, maybe they're struggling, maybe they're doubting, begin to pray for other people. It's not so much the words in our songs as it's the heart So come with a heart ready to offer spiritual sacrifices to Jesus who is so worthy. Pray for one another even as you are worshiping that your worship would be a powerful witness for somebody down the aisle from you. For those joining us online, here's my ask of you. If you live near and you can come in person, please come. You're asking that you make it a priority because there's something beautiful, something miraculous, something that proclaims the wisdom of God when we are together as the body of Jesus, the assembly of God. I remember before COVID started and while it was going on, people would often say, I just can't wait to get back together. Well, now when the time has come back together, a lot of us, we have gotten used to some rhythms of being isolated, of being separate from the body of Christ. So I'm asking you, would you this fall make gathering together a greater priority than ever before. But we also know that there are people who are watching or joining us from all around the country and maybe you can't get to a service here, maybe you're physically unable to. And here's my ask of you, don't just watch, worship. Worship with us, not just watch, don't just stream, but worship, sing together, read the scriptures together. In fact, gather some people in your family and in your neighborhood and say, will you join me in worship together? A dream of a day where Bentry is exploding all around the world and we've got microsites of worship services happening all around the nation and all around the world. Because we don't have to be confined by a building. We can worship God, but don't do it in isolation. Do it as a community. So don't just attend, worship. Don't just watch, worship. Now let's be a people that worships together and in doing so, we praise God. We encourage one another and we put the enemy to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us as your church, your bride, allowing us the joy of worshiping together. I pray every opportunity we get to worship collectively as your church. God, the land that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering and the praises of your people and the proclamation of gospel truths and singing and praying and hearing your word. So may we be a church that loves being together in worship as your body. And if there's anybody here today, God, that is distant from you, that has yet to offer their heart and worship to you, may today, may they realize that the sin offering has already been paid, they've already been welcomed, they have already been loved by an almighty God, and may they yield their life to the love of God, and may they experience the indescribable, the inexplainable love of Jesus. Overwhelm their heart today with your love and with your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. The church said, amen, amen. Amen.